Good morning, Anthem. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. I'm, uh, I like, am out of breath now. I don't know why, but looking at you, <laughs> maybe I like came up here and I was like, <gasps> uh, so um, there's something with the oxygen levels in here. Um, so <laughs> 1 Timothy 3, uh, we're actually beginning a new uh, series, a short topical series. Normally at Anthem, we preach through books of the Bible. Um, topical series just means taking a topic and looking at Scripture, preaching from Scripture, seeing what Scripture has to say about a topic. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at the topic of the church, the church, and specifically why she's worth it. Why is the church worth it? Why is the church worth the investment of our time, our, our contribution? Why is the church worth uh, leaning into? What, what is the church? Why does the church exist? And, and also, like, what, what, what is leadership in a church? Why sh should I be a member in a church? What are these small group things? What are we doing on Sundays? All the questions we're going to try to answer in this series between now and the beginning of summer. And, uh, and so hopefully a lot of your questions about church, this is a great time to be jumping in, but hopefully a lot of your questions will be answered. Uh, but today we're going to look at why we need the church in our lives. Why we need the church in our lives. Uh, to get at this, uh, I want to just give two, I guess, stories uh, to begin that are going to kind of help understand what Paul is going to say here in six, uh, 3, 16, uh, which is or 15. He's going to say, uh, if I delay, you, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now look at that word, pillar and buttress. First story is that just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there's a little sleepy village that's called Austin. And in 1909, a small paper mill moved to this quiet little community with the promise of jobs. And the, soon, the small mill soon realized that it needed to control the waterways in order to keep control and of the water so it would have a consistent flow for the mill because you need to keep the mill running and that was done through water and controlling it and if they could do that then the mill would run and then there'd be jobs uh, for this paper mill. And so they constructed a dam in order to control it, this dam. It's called the Austin Dam and this was considered kind of an engineering marvel in its day and it was also called the dam that could not break. The problem was it did middle of a massive rainstorm, it, the water built up on one side of it, and eventually it gave way in 19, or sorry, in September 30th, 1911. It broke, destroying the town of Austin. Along with it, all the opportunities, all the job opportunities were washed away, along with 78 souls that perished almost immediately. How, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, despite the pleadings of engineers, there were no buttresses on the dam. The engineers had pleaded, they said there was a design flaw here, which is that this, the dam looks good, but it needs buttresses. Buttresses are these little tiny uh, kind of triangle, not, those aren't tiny, but triangle uh, shaped, I don't know, when I say triangle, I want to immediately say tiny. I don't know why that is. Uh, but these triangle-shaped wedges that are there on the side so that as pressure builds up on one side of the dam, then as it pushes on the dam, those wedges push back in and they counterbalance it and they reinforce on the other side so that the dam doesn't fall down. It doesn't collapse. And the engineer said it needs buttresses. It needs buttresses or else it will collapse. But they didn't. And as the water rose, 
pressure rose, it eventually gave way. The second story, 100 years later, a similar fate awaited the I-35 bridge in downtown Minneapolis. Some of you remember this. I remember it because I actually moved to Minneapolis just under a month after this happened. And this would have actually been my daily commute every single day over this. And during the evening rush hour, even though there were reports from engineers saying that the underneath pillars were, were weakened by bowed gusset plates, which I don't know what that means, but I trust what the engineers say. And these pillars, <laughs> but they said that we need to shut down this bridge, we need to fix these, but they deemed that it was too costly. And so during rush hour on August 1st, 2007, it collapsed, plunging 115 feet, killing 13 people, and injuring 145. Why did this happen? Because despite pleadings of engineers, the pillars were weakened, beginning to buckle. And they could no longer carry the weight that was pressing down on them. So, why, why do I tell you this? Right? Right, well, this is kind of a dreary way to begin church, right? Uh, because Paul says that the church in our lives is to operate as a pillar and a buttress of truth. You see, without the church, we shouldn't expect to thrive. We shouldn't expect to live in accordance with the truth. We shouldn't expect us to stand strong and be like those who could never fail. But without the church in our lives, Paul's saying the same thing will happen to us that happened to, that, to the Austin Dam, that happened to the I-35 bridge. That when the pressures build up, when the weight comes down in life, without that buttress, without those pillars, we will give way. You see, it's easy to assume that we, like a dam without buttresses, or a bridge, can handle the pressures of life without the reinforcement of the church in our lives. But the fact is, the truth will not bear fruit in our lives if we don't have the church on it. That's what Paul's saying. So see, listen, just, so this is not a sermon about go to church because that's just where you hear people teach about truth. That's not what this is. Now, it's not less than that. We should be at church. We do want to hear truth. But at the same time, it's not, church is not just kind of some place to go get like a TED talk and just hear some truth, and those are some nice ideas. This is a sermon on why we need the church for the truth to bear fruit in us. For, us to, for the truth to become true in us. See, the main point is we need the church in our lives if we want everything we confess to be true, to become true in us. See, I used to think, I think I thought this even when I was like up in the seminary, honestly, I'm kind of uh, embarrassed to say it. Seminaries where you go to become a pastor and, and become really self-righteous and whatnot. Uh, and so when, <laughs> uh, and, and so when um, I, I think I still really assumed that church was really kind of like this lecture hall or kind of some nice Jesus-centered TED talk or something. But what I found was as the pressures of life would come down, as, as I would feel weight in my life, whatever that would look like, whether it be temptation or just cultural pressure, just the normal stresses of life, as they bear down, what I would find is again and again and again, even though I knew all this stuff, my life wasn't matching what I knew to be true. And honestly, if I'm thinking that's all church is, I didn't know what to do about that. I had no idea what to do about that. What I learned was what Paul says here. 
What I learned was that I need the encouragement. I need, I need the, the patience. I need the grace. I need the, the admonishment, the, the pointing towards truth. I need people who come into my life. And, and when I'm about ready to crumble, when I'm about ready to fall apart, when I'm, when I'm doubting, when I'm, when I'm going in these places where I'm just like, I, I just don't know if I can stand against this anymore. People who come alongside me, they know me well enough to just throw their lives in, into me, to, to just lean in. But Paul's saying here that I need people in my life who are a pillar and buttress of truth. Because here's the thing, when Paul talks about the church, just so we're clear, he's not talking about a place. He's talking about people. Paul here is talking about being a people of God who lean into one another's lives like a buttress, like a pillar who uphold one another when we're weak, when we're falling apart, when we don't know if we can handle the pressures anymore. And that's today what I want for us, to see the beauty of that, to see the privilege of that, to see the profound reality that that is. So what we're looking at is first why we miss the warning signs. Why, why do we miss the warning? I, what I would say is right now as a church, we're in a stage where we're looking around going, wait a minute, why are things kind of not seeming to work as the church right now? Why, why are things seeming to kind of crumble all around us? Why, why, why is everyone freaking out? I want to look at why do we miss the warning signs? Just like the engineers miss them. Why do we miss the warning signs? Then second, how to be a pillar and buttress as the church. So let's, uh, let's pray and then I'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for... Lord, this reality that in, in this room right now, Lord, being surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, being surrounded by multiple generations, being surrounded by diverse people, Lord, being surrounded by your body, all around us are miracles. Around us is your truth at work. All around us are miracles of your grace. Oh, Lord, I pray if nothing else, we walk away this morning not sensing that we're alone that you just saved us and left us and isolated us, but Lord, you have placed us in a body, in a church, where Lord, it is so worth it because we get to lean into one another's lives, point towards the truth, and see life come where there shouldn't be life, where there should be collapse. And so Lord, by your spirit this morning, would you do what only you can do to give us insight into how to apply this, where to work this out, where we need this, to be able to raise our hand and say, I need, I need you right now. Whatever it is, Lord, this morning, we trust you. So Lord, speak through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, uh, again, I think that we, when I talk about like water or kind of pressure building up, and, and in our lives, I, I think we, we experience this acutely, not because normally we, we just know this because uh, we, have, we have temptation in our lives. We, we have desires that at some point overwhelm us and there's temptation. That can be a pressure that builds up. We, we also have pressures in our life that build up just stresses of life, anxieties of life, the unknowns of life, the unpredictable of life. Those are always things that are piling up. But I think as well, when I say that, most likely a lot of you also think about just kind of, the, I guess I would say the cultural moment that we live in. But there's also a lot of cultural pressure that's building up. I know a lot of you in this service are students. And one of the things was last semester, I spent a lot of time with a lot of you trying to process how to navigate classroom situations where you were finding that if you even lean even anywhere in the proximity of the ballpark, 
of a Christian stance on any kind of issue. That, there's no chance you even pass a paper when you're writing it. And so you're wrestling with, like, how do I even get my major when I automatically fail just because of my worldview? Like, we feel the pressure of the world around us as well as Christians because something's changing. Something's shifting. It has been for a while, but I think for some, we're just waking up to it. And Paul says, because here's the thing. This is, I think in the midst of all this change and all these things going on, what we're doing is we're spending so much time debating uh, politics, debating how to, like, the culture should do things, debating how the world around us, what's going to happen, and there's all this kind of, like, like, people freaking out, and, and, and then we're just yelling at one another, and we're fighting. But here's the thing that I'm finding, honestly, as a pastor, as a friend, as a husband, as a dad, that in the midst of it, what's really happening at the end of the day is, and this is what we should be focusing on versus focusing on all this, is exactly what Paul's saying, which is most of us, though, at the end of the day, what really we're saying de- deep down in our hearts is not it's all out there. What we're saying is, at the same time, what I feel like is while that's building, and I'm just talking about that, what I'm saying is, I'm afraid to tell anyone, I feel like I'm going to give way. I feel like I'm collapsing. I feel like so, I, I, I don't know how much longer I can bear this. And so I think we're having all these debates and all these, and it's all the noise that's out there. When deep down, that's what's really going on in our hearts. And what Paul is saying is that's why I'm telling you right now, you need a pillar and a buttress of truth in our life. Look at verses 14 and 15. Again, 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. It's a family, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We need people in our life that come in when those waters come up and where it's deep down, we're going, I don't know if I can bear this. I don't know. I feel, am I I the only weak one here? Am I the only one who's struggling? Am I the only one who thinks they're just going to give in to whatever that temptation is? Am Am I the only one who's thinking like this stuff? Who's tempted by that stuff? Paul's saying we should have people in our lives that intimately know us that they can lean in right at those moments. They were able to be open and cry out for help and say it's becoming too much. But here's the problem. I think one of the realities is that the church stepping into our life in this way is actually kind of a foreign idea. And now, why is it such, and what I mean by that is just the idea that the church would be about more the relationships and the people then it would just be about the building, the budgets, and whatever the other B is. I don't know, there's three B, butts and seats, that's what it is. Uh, and so I was like, oh, I said butts and church. Uh, but that we make church about essentially, let's say just like a big concert, just get people in a room, get people into a place, and get, give them the feels, and then give them a few little pep talks, and then at the end of the day, tell them something to do, just give them something to do, and then that's our job. That's what we do, and we've made for so long in the West, we've made the church about primarily that. We've made it about keeping whatever this thing is going. We've made it about the four walls of this building. We've made it about the branding. We've made it about anything almost other than leaning in and being the people of God in one another's lives. This started hitting me when... And honestly, I, 
I said this before, because I just moved out last year from Southern California. I was pastor there for eight years before coming out here. And, uh, and one of the things I've said is I feel like I'm coming from the future because kind of cultural waves that like kind of come, like I'm t- I, I cannot impress upon you how important what we're talking about today is as a Christian. I, I have seen, I'm, I'm coming from the future, right? Like, I, I've seen that this, and I think everyone now is kind of realizing this now because of how the last year's gone. But we're realizing that essentially there's nothing, there's nothing in the world out there that is going to, like, reinforce your faith. But the problem is, how in the world did we get to a place where we assumed that the world would do that work? Because, see, here's what I had found was when I would have, I remember with one couple, a guy who was just leaving. I remember when he was leaving his wife and his children, we had tried to go to him because he's a member of the church. And, hey, you need to return to your wife. You need to not go down this route. It was a younger coworker he met. And it's like you need to return to her. And, and at that moment, just there was this hardness of heart. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, right? And so we're kind of coming up against and what, what used to happen culturally was there almost used to be like this cultural kind of wall here you could think about it. Like when we're coming to him going, dude, you need to do this. And he would kind of come up against this wall that would say, like, our culture would go, yeah, that's, that's not healthy. You should go back to your family, right? And, and what happened is, what I found is most of the time now, in fact, actually what they do is they go, oh, there's actually a door back here. You're telling me not to? Actually, I'm going to walk through it. And one, actually, we just now go to the church down the street. Isn't that great? But also what happened is the culture doesn't push back anymore. And a lot of what was happening for so long, the church is built on the fact that we just assume, we just give people some little kind of baptized tidbits on Sundays, and then they go out there, and the world will just kind of like form them morally, like, hey, you want your kids to grow up and be discipled in Jesus, just send them to school and they'll become moral people. If you want to have a good moral imagination, a godly imagination, just, just consume media. And, and surely our culture will just kind of cultivate something in you. And I know now it almost sounds silly, but here's the thing, guys. This is how we have gotten here and how we've operated de facto for so long. And it's why we missed the warning signs in the church. There's a great illustration. Sociologists really started trying to understand this in the mid-20th century. There was one, uh, Will Herberg, in 1958. He says this, and he gives just the, uh, the best picture I've ever found to explain what's going on. It's going to set up what's really going on in the church and what we need to do in response. Because what, what he said was, in the culture, what's happening is, it's as if we just for some reason believed. Now, he's not a Christian, so he's kind of got a certain viewpoint or idea here. But we just assumed that the culture was planted in, like, Judeo-Christian values. And that it would just continue to be planted in Judeo-Christian values. And so what would happen is, as a church, we just got to kind of, like, partner with that and just kind of come alongside it. But here's what he said. He said, the attempt made in recent decades to disengage the moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally-based religious context. In other words, most of the Western world, there is a reality here that it's based in a Judeo-Christian worldview. In the assurance that, but now they're, they're disengaging. In the assurance that they could live a life of their own as humanistic ethics has resulted in our cut flower culture. Get this imagery. Cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but only so long as they retain the vitality that they have drawn from their now severed roots. After that is exhausted, they wither and die. 
So also with freedom, brotherhood, justice, and personal dignity, the values that form the moral foundation of our civilization. Without the life-giving power of the faith, out of which they have sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. What's he saying here? It's an incredible word picture. He says, it's like when I buy my wife flowers and I bring them in and because I, I buy my wife flowers. Uh, and so I bring, my <laughs> I bring in flowers, and I'm just praying, because I bought them from like some store where they were a little bit cheaper, and I'm like, I hope these only last for like 36 hours, right? Because she'll know. Uh, so then I come in with, my, with the flowers, though, and I put them in a vase, and I put in that weird little packet of sauce or whatever they give you, and then you mix it around, and you put it in there, and you're like, you've never bought flowers for your wife. Uh, and, so when <laughs> uh, and so then uh, and you put them in there, and what happens is in like that first day, the first maybe half a week, maybe week, don't they look so alive? Don't they just burst forth with life? Don't they just bloom? There's so much color. And you walk in, you go, wow. That's why you always want to get the flowers like 24 hours before. But then slowly, you could think if you went in there, you would look at them and go, wow, but this is, they're going to last forever. There's so much life here. But then give it half a week, give it a week, give it two weeks, eventually. They start to wilt around the edges. The petals begin to fall off. They're dying. And what Herberg is saying is that we live in a society that's built on a moral foundation that now it's been severed from it. And the ironic thing is that maybe it's a decade, maybe it's several decades, maybe it's a generation or two or three generations. It will look very vibrant. It'll look like it's in its heyday. It'll look all alive and everyone's excited about this, but then what will happen is eventually, if it is severed from the roots, is it'll begin with a little hint of wilting on the edges. And then it'll begin that you'll see the petals essentially falling off. Things aren't quite working. And it starts to crumble and die. The reason why this is important is because all along during this time, we developed the predominant model that the church uses in the West now, partnering with the assumption that those flowers had life in themselves, that the culture was thriving. The, the West, in the West, the church has assumed the culture is Christian. But somewhere along the way, it got severed from the roots. It's a cut flower society. And over the last few generations, it's been slowly wilting as it runs through the last of its remaining vitality. But at the same time, we started doing church with the assumption that the culture was rooted in the truth. Now, by the way, side note, I don't think, I, I don't want you to hear like I'm like, you know, like the Andy Griffith show, Mayberry, Leave it to Beaver. Like I'm like, man, if we could get back to that, then the church would be amazing again, right? That, that's not at all what I'm saying. And the thing is that the church was never supposed to be relying on the culture. That was never where the hope was found. And no human culture ever does it perfectly, no matter how much we want to honor the past and we want to honor certain traditions. There are tons of sins that now we're having to reckon with from our society's past as well. We never should have been, because just as well as we're standing on certain things, there were also certain sins we were willing to overlook. We never should have been doing that in the church. But at the same time, if we expect 
the culture to be the pillar and buttress of truth, but it's dying, then what should we expect to happen in the church? It'll crumble. And I know nowadays we feel like the church is dying. Like the church is giving way. Something's wrong. Well, here's the thing. Jesus said, my church will not die. It will prevail even against the gates of hell. It will prevail. It is built on the foundation of who I am. It's rooted in who I am. I give it life. And as long as I give it life, it will never die. But how do you apply those words to churches that become dependent on the culture? That expect the culture to do the work of the church. Because the church is the people. If the people rely on the crumbling pillars and buttresses of the culture, something will give. See, we miss the warning signs because for so long in the church in the West, we assumed the culture would do the work. The day-to-day reinforcement of truth. The pushing back towards truth. But it's vanishing. And so what Paul is saying is not go and get the culture and try to transform it, like get, get the culture to act a certain way. If you could recapture that, if you could recapture Andy Griffith's Mayberry, then that will save the church. No, the church always is upstream from the culture. Where the church goes, the culture will go. So what Paul's saying is you need to be the church. You need to lean into what that reality is as the church to begin being the church again. And so that's what Paul's going to tell us next, how to be a pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, Honestly, here's the thing while I'm saying this. I, I just, I don't know, I'm not usually the one who's like, it's like, let's talk about the culture and the world. The world is going to world, and it's bad. Like, I don't know. It's just not my, like, gear. But here's the thing. As I'm doing this, I want you to hear, so I want you to hear perfectly clearly. I actually, right now, and this might sound kind of a little too, like, I don't know, too optimistic, but I am, right now, I'm incredibly excited about where I think the church in the West is going. And, and how the church in the West is doing. And here's the thing, because while everyone's saying this is a time when churches are vanishing and all that, I would say no, this is a, a time of refining. This is a time of pruning. This is a time that is going to lead to revival because surprise, surprise, the church is going to begin being the church or else it won't survive. And what will come out of that is fire. And so just don't, don't hear this as like a, oh man, the culture and the church. No, what I'm saying is we need to let go. We need to repent of those things and relying on the culture and move away from them and over even looking sinful aspects of human culture and incorporating them into the church and then begin being the church. And then God will do a mighty work. And so he says first, we need to root ourselves in Jesus In verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul is telling us here, make the main thing the main thing and the plain thing the plain thing. And he begins to describe, who is he describing here? You're in church now. You can do it, yeah. Jesus, right? So he's just, (laughs) like, ah, is Paul talking about himself? 
There's someone else? Is this Elijah? <laughs> uh, sometimes it's Elijah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so who's, he's describing Jesus. He's saying, make sure everything you do as a church is rooted in and built on the reality of who Jesus is. If you don't do that, or if you do that, you won't wilt. If you do that, you won't die. You'll thrive. Those pillars and those buttresses, your lives, they won't, they won't crumble under the pressure. You'll stand. So this is why we, everything we do as a church at Anthem, this is why we do orient it around, if you haven't heard our vision statement, we want to help people know, love, and obey Jesus. It's very simple. We help people know Jesus, know the truth of who he is, Know that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Know his sacrifice for sins. Know that he is now ascended. He's resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand. He's reigning now, and he's bringing a kingdom. And he not only can save us from our sins, but also that we become citizens of his kingdom. We can know him, and if we know him and we see him clearly, then we will love him. We know and we love him. We love him, and, and he takes up residence with us. He invites us into life with him, to know him, to not just have, to be, have union with him, but to have communion with him have a relationship with him and out of that overflows into loving others fulfilling the great commandment and then out of that flows obedience because if we love the lord god with all of our heart mind soul and our neighbor as ourselves, we will then out of that will flow obedience all the fruits of the spirit love patience serving others the most important thing we can do as a church, underneath everything, lots of cool things going on at Anthem, lots of cool ministries that are starting to spring up, actually. Things, as far as, like, just talking to someone the other day about going after this neighborhood, how can we serve this neighborhood and make, know the needs that are here and meeting those needs and serving people in our city, making the gospel known. Underneath all of that, though, is this one main plain thing, which is knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus Christ and never moving an inch from that. All the other things on top of it, they're all good things, and God uses those things in lots of places in the world, but as a church, our main focus must be to remain rooted, not to become a cut flower church, but to always remain rooted in Jesus over this uh, series, again, we'll, we'll cover a lot of different topics. And at one point, we will talk about, like, why do we gather every week? That's what you could call this. Why do we go to church? You know, we say, uh, you don't go to church. Church isn't a building. It's a people. So we gather with the other people, right? So you're like, why is he using weird, like, cultish language of gatherings? Uh, so, and then, so we'll talk about that in a, a whole sermon. But then also we'll talk about uh, what, when we scatter as a church, is we, we don't just, get, just leave this place, but we're being sent out and commissioned. We have a mission as a people of God. We'll talk about a lot of those topics, but here I want to just quickly highlight how do we at Anthem, as a people, how do we focus on Jesus just quickly in our gathering and then our scattering as a church? So every week when we come together here, we gather to remember the truth of who Jesus is. And I don't just mean to rem remember like, yeah, on the third day he rose again and all those things. It's like, no, remember that we have a king of the universe right now and he's proclaiming to us a kingdom. We should be a people who rediscover that we are Protestants. If you didn't know we're a Protestant church, some of you are like, oh, 
but <laughs> you didn't know by now. Uh, but, we're, uh, but we're a Protestants, and as Protestants, it means that we protest. And our main protest every Sunday morning when we walk in here is that we live for another king. We live for another kingdom. That is our banner. And so every week when we gather into this place, we remember and realign around that truth by telling the story afresh, by telling the gospel afresh. And so it looks like when we walk in here calling you, and this is something that we're incorporating a lot now and moving towards more and more and finding creative ways to do this, but we know that we are walking out of a culture, out of a world every single week that is bombarding us with messages that are going right after our hearts, trying to tell us if you will buy this product, then you'll be enough. If you buy this product, then you'll be you know, sexy and cool. If you buy this product or if you do this and you, you accomplish this, there's so much, all the world around us, the machinery all around us is focused on one thing, which is getting your attention and getting you to buy into their narrative of, about your identity and who you are. And everyone out there is waiting just for a vacuum in your soul and to fill it in. And so what we know is when you come in here, you need to have one thing made plain. What is the story? How did Jesus, who is he? Who am I because of what he's done? And so when we walk in here, we're, we're reminded of the fact that we read scripture and you're here because of this reason. You didn't just wake up this morning and go, well, I guess I'll go worship the God of the universe, right? No, you woke up this morning and, and you, it, but for God's grace, you, well, I almost like give him a sign, right? And you just go your other way. And in fact, if you tried to enter into the presence of the God of the universe, you'd be consumed by fire unless something were true. And the truth is that he invites you to himself in spite of the fact that he's a consuming fire. And as you come into his presence, you see how glorious he is. You see how holy he is, how good he is. As you're worshiping him, and as I've, I've used this a couple times, but as you're worshiping him, and I know I'm, like, some of you are like this, and some of you are more like not varsity, you're kind of like junior varsity, like, like the T-Rex worship, like me, right? Like, I, I'm, more, I'm more this. I start here, Lord, no one's around, right? Uh, Anyway, so wherever you're at in that spectrum, but you're worshiping God, you realize, what have these hands done this week? I'm, I'm, I'm going, God, here's my life. I'm here to worship you. And then as you're worshiping him, you're realizing, like, who am I to be doing this? Because I know what these hands have done. I know what this mouth have said. I know what this mind has filled itself with and contemplated, entertained itself with, Try to satisfy itself with. So as we come to that moment every week, then we're reminded that, yes, we come into God's presence, and he's, a, he's amazing to see him without then clearly knowing yourself. And so often in the church, what we tell each other to do is just pretend at that moment, sweep it under the rug, and just get with the program, get energetic, and go do some work for God. But every week he says, I want you to be with me before you do anything. And he invites us to himself to confess our sin and bring it before him. And then from there, being given consolation and assurance of the grace of Jesus Christ that will meet us in our place of sin, rebellion, and brokenness. And now that consuming fire takes up residence within you and burns. It doesn't burn you down. It burns with a passion within you. And 
from that then, because we've been reconciled to God, we turn and we welcome one another. Because if we're reconciled to God vertically, then now horizontally we turn and we, we can be reconciled to one another. Then we hear from God's word, and then we hear, we're given symbol that Jesus has given, and this is a tangible expression of that reality. There is a, a buttress and a pillar every week that we get in your life, which is this tangible picture of Jesus' sacrifice and the life you have in him. And then from there, being celebrating God and then being sent out, you're not just merely leaving this place, but you're sent with a purpose to live these truths out. You have a different story. Here is my story, here is my song. And we praise our Savior all the day long as we go out into the city around us. We're formed. See, we, our approach here at Anthem is not just to like melt your face, to just impress you, and you walk away and you talk about us at lunch. They're so cool and I just want to be a part of the people, right? No, we want you to walk away and say, did you hear, like, I never seen Jesus in that way. Like, I just, a Jesus, my need for Jesus how beautiful he is, how good he is, how true he is. We're not so interested that you would walk away from here just liking us. We're interested that you would see him and you would know him. And we're not so interested just that your mind would be blown, but that after five years of gathering with us, four years, three years, you would become a certain kind of Christian. Not self-righteous and reinforced and pretending like a bunch of consumers, but instead that you would self-denying, sacrificial love of a savior that transforms you. That makes us a certain kind of people in the world around us. We have to keep it about Jesus. And then connect, as we scatter, we're sent into connection groups and into those groups, and we focus on knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus. Sometimes it looks like Bible study. Sometimes it looks like hanging out. Sometimes it looks like praying with one another. But either way, that's where we tangibly then get into relationships where we're able to lean into one another's life. That's where it really begins to happen, this buttressing and this being a pillar in one another's life. Because we're able to lean in tangibly with people that we know, not some idea of people out there like, I love humanity, but I hate this person next to me. It's like, come on. Like in the church, it, it, it makes us actually deal with that junk that our culture hands us. Like everyone out there, it, I just love everyone, but everyone around me, boy, they're just a mess. It, 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 God takes us by the scruff of the neck and he says, try to find, it's my perfection, not theirs and yours. If you try to find a perfect church, then the problem is you're going to keep going and every time you arrive at one, you're going to mess it up because you're there. So what happens in our small groups is you lean into one another and you build those relationships where you know one another. And when that weight comes down, you're there. And just, guys, like, this isn't like me being like, hey, I'm a pastor and I, I accomplished this. And so now you go do it. Like, I need this. Not even a month ago my, in my connection group, afterwards they could just see I was just broken, man. Like, I was just falling apart. And they, and they just said, wait, let's, Versus trying to like just kind of keep, like, let's come. Can we pray over you? And they gathered around me, and I, I was sobbing, and they just laid hands on me and prayed over me, spoke truth, reminded me of truth and promises of God. Man, like, just walking away from that, I remember just, whew. do you have that? You need that. God wants that for you. When you were saved, you were placed. If you know Jesus Christ, you were placed into his body. You're not meant to do it alone. 
The second thing, so we need to root ourselves in Jesus, but also reinforce and support one another with grace. So kind of what does that look like? Just looking at that a little bit more. Uh, Paul says that we should be growing. We, spiritually, we should be growing. If we're in the church, look at verse 15 again. Uh, he says, if I delay that, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, is he, when he says you should know how to behave in the household of God, is Paul talking about like church etiquette, right? I don't know if when you first read that, if you're like, oh yeah, like don't chew gum in church. And if your child cries, remove him at this point and always wear uh, a suit or I don't know, something like that. And so something like some kind of church etiquette, he's saying how to behave when you go to church. No, Paul's saying, because he picks it up then in verse 16, great indeed. What, what does it look like? Indeed, what it looks like is the mystery that we confess of godliness. In other words, what's godliness? It's to be like God. And he's saying it's a mystery that you could be a part of something that would form you and change you and transform you so that your life would look more and more in concert or like God. Your character would change. You would mature. You would bear fruit in your life. And it's a mystery how that could ever happen, but here's how we do know it happens. The mystery has been revealed, and he has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus showed us what it meant to have life in God, to be transformed, to be renewed, to have fruit bearing in our life. He's the way to God, the truth of who God is that makes life with God possible. So how do I behave? How do I become godly? We work out the gospel, being pillars and buttresses in one another's life as the church while pointing one another to Jesus and leaning in with grace. God came into the mess Think about Jesus. God came into the mess, into the, the waters, into the pressures, into all those realities. He entered into it so that he could transform us, so he could save us from our sins. When everything was failing, he said, fall down on me. Collapse on me. And he took that collapse. And now, instead, he, he rises from the grave and he sends his spirit into his people so that we would be empowered, working through his word, to be able to lean into one another's lives sensing where that brokenness is, and running into one another's lives just like he ran into the world. If you have his spirit, you will see brokenness, and your heart will be compelled to run at it because that's who God is. This means encouraging with one another with the truth, building one another up, warning one another, being patient. There are over 90 one another passages in the New Testament. What I mean by that is serve one another, love one another, encourage one another, share with one another, lean in, uphold one another. Why? So that we would take hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed so that what we confess to be true would become true in us. Quickly, I should just say, often, though, we fall into the trap of just driving one another with our expectations. I mean, uh, let's be honest. Don't we normally, when we think about church and leaning into one another, that we think about just kind of coming in with all kinds of rules and all kinds of things and just driving one another with kind of this performance-based attitude where it's like, here's all these expectations. Even... Actually, chapter four, right after that, that's where Paul goes. He says, don't make it about this other stuff. Don't make it about adding laws and all this. Just focus on Jesus. What I would call this is spiritual expectation escalation, okay? This is what often happens that just crushes us. What, what happens, if you've ever, some of you guys may have done like sales before, or you've had a job or done something, and what happens is you have a baseline. Like, uh, you know, sell 100 widgets next month. And you get to the end of the month and you've sold 130 widgets. 
and you're like, oh, this is amazing, and everyone has that awkward office party where, like, they have balloons, like, yay, and you're like, yeah, and then afterwards, they're like, we're so proud of you. In fact, we're so proud that next month, 130 is your new baseline. We expect you to meet it, right? And you're like, oh, is that a raise? I don't understand, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't, what, what do you mean this is my new, see, the thing is, you, it's like, I exceeded expectations. I had a great week. I had a great day. I had a great month. I had a great year. I had a great season of life where God's really at work and bearing fruit. And then all of a sudden, that becomes this huge, massive mountain I've got to keep on top of all the time in order for you to be appeased with me. And what happens is we often do that with one another where we escalate the expectations way beyond Scripture. And then we just stick there, and then we, we just kind of drive one another. And here's the thing. We live in an age of insta-famous Christians and people and seeing individuals through filtered realities. None of it's real, by the way. And you're like, really? Not real. But we tend to take that fake reality and project it onto one another. And expectations just get ratcheted up more. And it feels like at church, it's just one big game of just everyone saying, everyone, just keep up, keep up, more, more, more. But that's not the church. Unfortunately for many of us, we believe, because that's all we've experienced, that that's what the church is. Honestly, if that's, if that's what the church is, I'm like, I'm joining a CrossFit gym, Right? I'm joining the military. Like, I'm going to at least get, like, in really good shape or something and get a pension plan. You know, it's like, <laughs> if I want somebody to just bark orders at me all the time. Not the church. Instead of pointing out the flaws of one another, spiritual expectation escalation, we should be instead grace escalators in one another's lives. Instead of nitpicking one another's performance, just always kind of watching, right? Kind of sitting back. Like sometimes we think church is about like, you know that guy in the corner? He's just watching. And you're like, oh, he's waiting for me to mess up, right? We think it's just about like watching everyone else's performance. When instead, in nitpicking, instead it's about pointing each other to Jesus' performance. Not expecting perfection in one another, but pointing to Jesus' perfection. Because here's the thing. If you go through life pretending and reinforcing an attitude of just pretending and performing that you've got it all together, because believe me, that's what it reinforces when that becomes the culture, then what will happen is you will just become bitter and burnt out. But instead, what Jesus wants is he wants you to know his grace because that's what will transform you. You sinned, let's go to the cross Let's confess before him. Let's get real. Like, get gritty. Like, bring it out. Don't, don't hide it. Don't put it under the rug. Don't put it in the closet. Bring it out and go to him. Find grace and begin anew. You're overwhelmed. Let's go to the one who gives peace. You're doubting. Don't ridicule. Let's go to the one who is true. Let's go before him. Listen, Paul says be a, Paul says be a, a buttress for truth, not a self-righteous butthead, okay? Paul's not saying here, and I, I feel like I should say this at this point. Like, I know some of you are probably hearing this, and there's this thing where it's like, like, oh, I know what you're talking about. When you say a buttress, like that motion when I do that, it looks like you, you think, oh, I've had that in the church, and it was like a linebacker body checking me. It wasn't like a buttress, right? Somebody came alongside and blindsided me and me, and like, oh, I just walk off like, Jesus, right? And you're just lying there like broken because someone just ran you over like a Mack truck. Here's the thing. Paul is not saying that that's what we're to do. And here's the thing. If that's happened to you, 
However many of us, it's about, here's the thing, it's, it's happened to me. It's a reality, and if it's happened, I'm just, but here's the thing, there's a lot of, there's healing in the church of God. The church of God is not perfect, should not be done. But here's what I do know, here's where you start. Don't run the other way. Don't run from this reality. What happened was wrong, but there is healing to be found. And Paul says it, it comes by finding those who will come in and lean in and be that nurturing, grace-filled, loving, buttress of truth, reminding you, singing over you. So often when we experience those things, we try to go our own way and say, well, then I'll just be like that Austin Dam and I'll just live without the pillars because sometimes I've, I've experienced the pillars hurting me. It will give way. Don't run. What Paul says is the church should reinforce the truth that the weight of our identity isn't found in projecting some performance or pretending we've got it all together, but in coming as we are in Christ. Coming as the project that we are. Coming in here, we, we shouldn't be a church where you come in here and you're like, okay, I know the things I'm supposed to act and do, and that's what I'm, you know, and, sure, social etiquette, wear shoots and, or shoes and shirts, okay? But at the same time, it's like when we come, I don't have to pretend where I'm at. I need to go and be honest before the Lord and have people in my life who know where I'm actually at. But here's the thing, when we do that, because what Christ is saying is I want you to see people as I see people. There, there was uh, the Michelangelo uh, David statue, I would have a picture, but can't show that picture in church. Uh, Michelangelo, uh, somebody once asked him when he was, uh, made the, the David, he said, how did you make that? Like, how did you see the David? How did you carve away everything that wasn't David? Or how did you carve away, like, how did you make David and sculpt him? And he said, it's simple. I didn't carve David. I chiseled away everything that isn't David. In other words, he had a vision for who, what this David would be. And in, at first, you just see this big block of rock. There's a lot to be chiseled away. But the thing is, the whole time he's chiseling away, he sees what's to be revealed. And what God is saying for us is we have the privilege in one another's lives of stepping into one another's life and not just saying, hey, there's a block. And you're like, yep, they look like a block. And you're like, take a pickaxe and just bam, right? He's saying, go into one another's life with a vision through my eyes of what I'm doing. See the final vision of who I'm making them into. And as you see it, gently come along and help chisel away the things that are holding them back and help fight for one another's freedom. Contend in prayer for the power of God to free them. That's what we do as a church. That's the vision. That's the privilege we have in one another's lives. To be like artists, redemptive, stand in one another's lives. When the world leans out, we lean in as a buttress. When the world cuts down, we uphold. See, the gospel isn't just a message that we share. The gospel is also a message, a reality that we serve one another with. And again, we won't do it perfectly. None of us will. We aren't perfect but our Jesus is. I heard it put really well recently by an older pastor. He said, it isn't about how well we do the things that we do as a church, but how great Jesus does the things he does. Our job is to lean in. 
our job is to invest in one another, to lean into his truth and the reality of what he's done. He'll do his work. So I'd ask you, find, find a small group before you leave here today. Try to find a small group, but also don't, like, I know that whole thing where, like, maybe you had a bad experience. I, I Just reach across the aisle and invite one another to lunch. Invest in relationships. Lean into one another. Find someone. If you're alone and you don't, you just feel like you're just standing there with a weight bearing down on you, I'm just saying don't leave here today without finding someone and saying, hey, can I go to lunch with you? Can we get to know one another? Schedule play dates. Whatever it is, lean in. There's lots of avenues here. You can stop by the welcome space. We have many avenues to get connected. Go to the men's conference and find other men there. Do manly things and connect, right? Um, the waters are rising. The pressure has, is, or will come. You need a pillar and buttress of truth. Put your roots in the gospel. Invest in relationships that reinforce the grace of God in your life. And over time, by God's grace, everything you confess to be true will begin to become true in you. That's why God has given us the church. An anthem? That's why she's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this family. Lord, help us. Help us to live into this. Lord, this is not something we can do left to our own power, left to our own devices, left to our own wisdom, to our own charisma, to our own whatever it is. We need you. We need you to do a work that's beyond just knowing the truth with our heads, but Lord, working it down into our souls. Lord, give us eyes that break for one another, that yearn to see one another fully complete in Christ, that see what is holding us back, what's, what's there that needs to be chiseled away, and Lord, graciously stepping in, leaning in, investing, not just criticizing, not tearing down, not just adding weight and condemnation on top of one another, not heaping it up. Lord, running to you, going to you, finding life in you, cherishing you together. Lord, give us brothers and sisters in this room that are in our lives like that. Lord, give us the humility to cry out for help, for reinforcement. And Lord, do a mighty work in our midst, bonding us together in Christ. Lord, from that reality, we would be a people who put down pretending, we put down performance, and the only performance we lean on is your sons. And Lord, out of the joy that we find in that reality, would we grow in love for him and obedience, but also, Lord, just in overflowing into the city around us and proclaiming the life that we have in him. Thank you, Lord, for this family. Do this work by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.